Section three of the third Miss Simmons by F. M. Mayer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five. And now the even course of Henrietta's life was interrupted. Evelyn returned home. She and her friend were both grown up into young ladies. Many letters had passed between the sisters, but it was so long since they had seen one another that each felt a little shy at the meeting. Evelyn was very lovely, made to please and be pleased, a regular mid-Victorian heroine, universally courted. Though always courted, she was never spoilt, and was a most affectionate sister and daughter. But the old particular bond which had attached her and Henrietta no longer existed. She was equally affectionate to Minna and Louis. Still, her coming made a great difference to Henrietta. There was a person of her own generation and way of thinking to converse with. They could have jokes together, and Evelyn was still full of schoolgirl enthusiasm. She had numberless schemes of occupation, duets, French readings, and splashwork, and when she went away on visits there were her letters, much more intimate than those of a year or two earlier, full of allusions to their new occupations and teasing, of a kind complimentary sort, which was new and very delightful to Henrietta. They were arranging flowers in the schoolroom one afternoon, roses, which had been brought to Evelyn by an admirer. They dropped some on the floor. Both stooped to pick them up, and they knocked their heads together. Evelyn got up laughing, but felt her hand suddenly snatched, and kissed with a long, eager kiss. She turned round startled. "'What is it?' she said. "'I couldn't help it,' said Henrietta, half hysterically. "'If you knew what it is to me to have you back, I can't tell you.' "'Is it, dear?' said Evelyn. "'I'm so glad.' and she smoothed Henrietta's forehead with a pretty gesture full of sweetness, but with a touch of condescension in it. She had listened already to so many passionate declarations about herself, one that very afternoon, that she was not so much impressed by Henrietta's as most younger sisters would have been. Still, she could not help contrasting herself in her triumphant youth with Henrietta, disregarded by everyone and snubbed. Mr. and Mrs. Simmons never snubbed Evelyn, and she thought for a moment, "'Oh, I'm thankful I'm not her,' but she put the thought away as unkind, and supposed vaguely that Henrietta was so good she did not mind. Now that Evelyn was come back, Mrs. Simmons roused herself from her invalidism to provide amusements for her. So little was possible at home that almost at once a round of gay visits was arranged. Minna was less engrossed now that the babies were older, and took her out to parties, and Louis had all the officers of her husband's regiment at command. These same attractions had been offered to Henrietta. Louis had been most sincerely anxious to atone for the past, and had invited her again and again, but Henrietta had always refused for though the original wound was healed, she still cherished resentment against Louis. Evelyn's was a career of triumph. Her letters and Louis's and Minna's were full of officers and parties. This roused Henrietta's old discontent. Why was Evelyn to have everything and she nothing? She promptly answered herself, because Evelyn is so sweet and beautiful. She deserves everything she can get. 
but the question refused to be snubbed and asked itself again she hated herself for envying and continued to envy evelyn came home from her visits very much excited and interested about herself but still not unmindful of henrietta let me come into your room etty and tell you everything i had a perfect time with louis she was a dear she was always saying now who shall we have to dinner you must settle so i just gave the word and whoever i wanted was produced louis wishes you would go too do go you would have such fun she gave me a note for you my dear etta the note ran the ninth is having a dance on the twenty-eighth i wish you would come and stay with us for it come and bring evelyn i particularly want to have her for it there is a special reason everyone is enchanted with the dear little thing i shall be disappointed if you don't come too it all happened such years ago surely we may forget it and edward is always asking me why i do not have you and it seems so absurd when i have no proper reason to give i shall really think it too bad of you if you don't come yours affectionately l n carrington henrietta thinking over the matter found there was no reason why she should not go at twenty-seven she felt herself rather older than this generation at forty-eight and thought it ridiculous that she should be going to a dance but once she was there louis made her feel so much at home she found her remarks were so warmly welcomed and her few hesitating sallies so much enjoyed that she began to think that after all she was not completely on the shelf don't go to-morrow etta stay here there's the steeplechase on friday i want you to see that no thank you louis said henrietta i can't leave mother longer it's been very delightful more delightful than you can realise perhaps you're so much accustomed to it but i must get back now that really is nonsense etta mother has ellen and she has father and she's pretty well for her you said so yourself but henrietta persisted in her refusal for she had all the strong though sometimes unthinking sense of duty of her generation well if you will go you must but now you have begun coming come often write a line whenever you like and propose yourself as they said good-night louis whispered have you forgiven me etty yes said henrietta that's all past and gone for a matter of fact said louis he is not very happy with her they don't get on the moffats know him and mrs moffat told me oh i am sorry said henrietta but she was not displeased evelyn stayed behind and louis talked henrietta over with her poor ever since her marriage henrietta had been poor to louis poor etta really isn't bad-looking and when she gets animated she isn't unattractive if i could have her here often i believe i could do something for her when evelyn came home a week or so later she had an announcement to make she had become engaged to an officer a friend of the carringtons who had been staying in the house he was delightful the engagement was everything that was to be desired and evelyn was radiant henrietta knew that such an announcement was bound to come sooner or later but she had so longed for a few years happy intercourse together she tried to think only of evelyn but she could not keep back all that was in her mind 
think of me left all alone it was so dreary and when you came back everything different now it will go back to what it was before no no etty darling you will come and stay with us for months and months no i shan't when you have got him you won't want me yes i shall i shall want you all the more i love you more than i've ever done in my life my darling sister we've always been special we two haven't we ever since i can remember henrietta was a little comforted and did not realize that though evelyn's tenderness was absolutely sincere it came from the strange expansion of the heart which accompanies true love and was not habitual the marriage took place almost at once for the captain's regiment was ordered on foreign service and evelyn went away to regions where it was not possible for henrietta to visit her but if she had lived in england henrietta would not have felt herself at liberty to go away for long after she got home she felt glad she had not extended her visit to the carringtons for mrs simmons was not so well and she died shortly afterwards and henrietta reigned in her stead chapter six the household changed now two new elements were introduced william came from london to be a partner in his father's firm and lived at home and harold who had been employed by an engineer in the north found work in the neighbourhood and came back too so that henrietta's life became at once much fuller of interest and importance than it had been for years as the only lady of the house she was bound to be considered to make decisions to have much authority in her own hands and at twenty-seven she greatly appreciated authority if she was not to have love she would at any rate have position and the servants found her an exacting mistress mrs simmons though she had given over certain duties to henrietta had kept herself head of the house to the time of her death she had a way with servants they always liked her and stayed with her but latterly she had let things slide and when henrietta took her place she found much to criticise most of the servants left just some stayed and agreed with ellen that it was just miss henrietta's way she was funny sometimes however they got used to her and things jogged along pretty quietly when ellen left to be married and there was no one in the kitchen to make allowances for her she had much more difficulty, and Mr. Simmons was occasionally disturbed in his comfortable library by an indignant apparition which declared amid gulps that it had no wish whatever to make complaints, but really, Miss Henrietta! Mr. Simmons thought this very hard. Can't you manage to make them decently contented? We never used to have this sort of thing, he would say henrietta would defend herself by counter-charges and on the whole felt the incident was creditable to her as showing that she was a power and a rather dreaded power in the house the men thought also that they were under a needlessly harsh yoke henrietta grumbled when they were late for meals or creased the chintzes or let the dog in with muddy paws from a combination of kindness weakness and letting things slide they made no complaints Mr. Simmons always remembered and felt sorry for the episode which Henrietta herself had almost forgotten, and he was determined to make up to her by letting her be as unpleasant as she liked at home. If only they had spoken strongly while there was yet time. They did not realise. It is difficult for those in the same house to realise where things were tending. 
Henrietta's temper became less violent. There were fewer occasions for losing a temper when one has grown up, but she took to nagging like a duck to water. But if they made no complaints, the men left her to herself. Mr. Simmons spent many hours at his club, and her brothers entertained their friends in the smoking-room. She was vaguely disappointed. She had an idea gleaned from novels and magazines that as the home daughter to a widowed father, the home sister to two brothers, she would be consulted, lent on, confided in. Mr. Simmons missed his wife at every turn, but he never felt Henrietta could take her place. Her nagging shut up his heart against her. He thought it silly, rather unfairly perhaps, for she inherited the habit from her mother, and he had never thought her nagging silly. As to William and Harold, they had come to the ages of thirty-five and twenty-six without any wish for confidence, and why should they wish to confide in Henrietta? She was not wise, and she was not sympathetic. The mere fact that they lived in the same house with her caused no automatic opening of the heart. Well on in middle life, William became engaged and suddenly poured out everything to his love. But for the present he and Harold were content to go through life never saying anything about themselves to anybody. In fact, they hardly ever thought of Henrietta. She would have been astonished if she had known what an infinitesimal difference she made in their lives. As mistress of the house, Henrietta was promoted to the circle of the married ladies, and the happiest hours of her life were spent in visits she and they interchanged, when they talked about servants, arrangements, prices, and health. They were not intimate friends. Perhaps the women of fifty years ago did not have the faculty of staunch and close friend-making possessed by our generation. And now Henrietta did not very much want to make friends. She would have thought intimacy a little schoolgirlish, a little beneath a middle-aged lady's dignity. Her parents had been a very ordinary couple in a country town. They, and the society they frequented, were uncultivated and uninterested in everything that was going on in the world outside. The men, of course, were occupied with their professions, and almost all the ladies had large growing families which gave full scope for their energies. Henrietta had not their duties, and was better off than the majority of them, but she did not find time hang heavy on her hands. Long ere this she had learnt the art of getting through the day with the minimum of employment. Now, of course, her various duties gave her a certain amount to do, but not enough to occupy her mind profitably. She often said, I am so busy I really haven't a moment to spare, and quite sincerely declined the charge of a district, because she had no time. If any visitors were coming to stay, she spoke of the preparations and the work they entailed as if all was performed by her single pair of hands. What with Louis and Edward coming tomorrow, and Harold going to the Tyrol on Wednesday, I cannot think how I shall manage, but I suppose, with a resigned smile, I shall get through somehow. She was persuaded into visiting a small hospital once a fortnight for an hour, and the day and hour were much dreaded by her entourage, so vastly did they loom on the horizon, and so submissively must every other event wait on their convenience. Minna and Louis often came on visits with their children. 
the three sisters got on much better than formerly though minna and louis were both too much absorbed in their own interests to give henrietta a large place in their thoughts minna's husband failed early in health before he had had time to fulfil his promising early prospects while louis's colonel when he retired from the army occupied his leisure in speculation and greatly diminished that attractive fortune of his all three sisters had a certain amount of money left to them by their mother but in spite of this minna and louis were now both comparatively speaking poor while henrietta with no one dependent on her and a large allowance from her father was comfortably off louis and minna quite gave up talking of poor henrietta and really henrietta has done very well for herself was a remark frequently exchanged henrietta had always been generous and her sisters soon came to expect as a right that she should rescue them in times of domestic need pay for a nephew's schooling send a delicate niece to the sea and give very substantial presents at birthdays and christmas their point of view seemed to be that if any one had been so lucky as to keep out of the bothers of marriage the least she could do was to help her unfortunate sisters still they disliked being beholden to henrietta and half intentionally set their children against her to relieve their feelings the children were not bad children but henrietta found their visits burdensome she was becoming a little set and unwilling to be disturbed and she said the children were spoilt minna and louis had determined they would not be the strict parents of the elder generation whereas henrietta who remembered all the snubbing of her youth wanted to have her turn of giving snubs and this did not make her popular she never grew very fond of these children but kept her affection for something else for it is not to be supposed that a heart with such peculiar longing for love was to be satisfied with a life in which feeling played so little part she had put aside the desire for a lover now she was not one of the women who nothing will satisfy but marriage on the whole she did not care very much for men she wanted what she had always wanted something to love and something to love her and she had good reason to hope that at least that wish might be fulfilled for it was agreed between her and evelyn that if there were any children she was to bring them up while evelyn was abroad round this hope she built many happy schemes henrietta had seen very little of evelyn all this time the regiment went from one foreign station to another but very affectionate letters passed between the two for some years no children were born then came a little girl she is to be called etta said evelyn's letter and you know she is your baby as well as ours do you remember what you did for me in old days i think of how you will do the same for baby and i could not bear for anyone else to do it but you the baby died in the first year then came a little boy who lived an even shorter time then another little girl the parents and henrietta hardly dared to hope this time but the perilous first year passed then although she was always very delicate a second third and fourth then when the plans were maturing for her coming home she died too it seems sometimes as if death cannot leave a certain family alone 
but comes back to it again and again. Evelyn is broken-hearted, her husband wrote, and if she stays in this horrible India I believe I shall lose her too. I am going to exchange, if I can, to a home regiment, or I shall leave the army. I do not care what we do as long as I get her away. In the midst of it all she keeps thinking of how you will feel it. I believe a good cry with you is the one thing that might comfort her. Henrietta took this letter to her father and implored him to let her go out to India at once. But this Mr. Simmons, though kind and sympathetic and truly sorry for Evelyn, could not bring himself to allow. He was getting to the age when he shrank from violent upheavals. Herbert said they were leaving India. By the time she arrived they would probably be gone, and then what a wild goose chase it would be. Then, of course, she could not go alone, and who was to go with her? Her brothers could not spare the time, and he did not feel up to going, and she must have a man with her. Edward? No, certainly not. Since his speculations, Edward was in bad odour. No, it would be much better to write a kind letter. He would write, too, and drop this really foolish scheme, which would, among other things, be very costly, more costly than he felt prepared to face just then she said she would go alone. Then you would go entirely without my sanction. It is a perfectly impossible thing for a young lady to contemplate. You've never even been on the continent, and you think of travelling to India, unattended. She had never acted in opposition to her parents, though she had often been domineering to her father in small matters when he had not resisted. She was always weak. She could only fight when the other side would not fight back. She said, oh father i must go and when he said nonsense i couldn't think of it she collapsed partly from cowardice partly from duty though her father was not in the least strong-willed either and with a little serious resistance would have been made to yield she felt bitterly the reproach in evelyn's letter if only you could have come she did not feel as wildly wretched as fifteen years ago, because now, in middle age, what she passed through at the moment was not of the same desperate importance. But then she had a small corner of hope hidden away that perhaps something might happen, whereas now she realised clearly that the prospect which had given her her chief interest and delight was destroyed for ever. The trouble told on her. She caught a chill, which developed into pneumonia. She was dangerously ill for some weeks, and when she was better she was long in getting up her strength, because she had no wish to get well. Minna and Louis thought it odd that Henrietta should fret so much about Evelyn's children, whom she had never seen. She has always seemed to make so much more fuss over them than over her own nephews and nieces in England. Of course it was natural that dear Evelyn herself should be distracted, but for Henrietta it almost seemed a little exaggerated. When she was well enough to travel, the doctor recommended the south of France for the winter, and she went away with a married friend, the Carrie Bostock, of the Italian readings. It was all very pleasant and entertaining to Henrietta, who had never been abroad, never even away from her own family. In the Riviera she could to a certain extent drown thought, but she counted the days with consternation as each one in its flight brought her nearer to taking up life again at home. 
One afternoon she received a letter from her father. "'My dear Henrietta,' it ran, "'I do not know if you will be surprised to hear "'that I am engaged to be married to Mrs. Waters. "'We have not known one another very long, "'but I must say I very soon felt "'that she would be one who could take your dear mother's place. "'I think it is very possible that you may have observed "'whither matters were tending. "'I feel certain that we shall all be very happy together, "'and I hope you will write her a warm letter of welcome to our family.' she will of course i am sure be both mother and sister to you etc the news was staggering to henrietta she had been so engrossed in her own trouble that she had observed nothing of what was going on around her mrs waters a widow who had lately settled in the neighbourhood had been several times to their house and had entertained them at hers but that she should be anything more than a friendly acquaintance had never entered Henrietta's head. She was to be ousted, her mother was to be ousted, and she was to give a warm welcome to the interloper. Her forgotten temper burst forth. She wrote a violent letter to her father, hurling at him all the ridiculous, exaggerated things that most people feel at the beginning of a rage, but which few are so mad as to commit to paper. She refused altogether to write to Mrs. Waters. She also relieved herself by contradicting everything Carrie said, thus giving her a good excuse for those long talks to a third party, which frequently take place when friends have been abroad together, beginning, I really had no idea she could. After she had written the letter, as usual, she was very much ashamed. She wrote again, unsaying all she had said but her father had been too much wounded to reply. She came back just a little before the wedding, to see him in quite a new light, a lover, for he, at sixty-five, and Mrs. Waters, at forty-seven, had fallen in love. When Henrietta saw more of her stepmother-to-be, she had, in honesty, to own that she liked her. She was not only very attractive, but she was so thoroughly nice and kind, so intent on making people happy, so entirely without airs of patronage, and Henrietta could see how everybody warmed under her smile. Henrietta had settled that she would not live at home after the marriage. Neither she nor her father could forget the letter. It was better that they should part. She had again asked his forgiveness, but neither felt at ease with the other. She stayed for a few weeks after Mr. and Mrs. Simmons came back from the honeymoon, and saw, almost with consternation, how the spirit of the house changed. It became peaceful, cordial, harmonious. It would not have been known for the same house. The whole household liked Mrs. Simmons. Even her own dog deserted Henrietta. It was not that she was ousted from her place. It was that Mrs. Simmons created a place which never had been hers. She had had no idea in all those twelve years how little she had made herself liked. She had had her chance, her one great chance in life, and she had missed it. When she went away, there were kind good wishes for her prosperity, interest in her plans, many hopes that she would visit them, but no regret. With a clearness and honesty of sight she unfortunately possessed, she realised that 
no regret. What was the use of twelve years in which she had sincerely tried to do her best if she had not built up some little memorial of affection? It was the old complaint of all her life. I am not wanted. The anguish she had shared with Evelyn and her husband had been much sharper, but in the midst of it there had been consolation in the exquisite union they had felt with the children and with one another. Here there was nothing to cheer her. There is not much consolation when one fails, where it seems quite easy for others to succeed. Now that it had become evident that she would be so little missed, she was in haste to get the parting over and be gone. But her unadventurous spirit shrank from going out in the world to manage by herself. She was very doubtful what she should do. She would not have been welcomed by Minna or Louis, even if she had wished to live with them. Her second brother was in some inaccessible foreign place. Evelyn and Herbert were also far out of reach. He had exchanged into a regiment which was quartered at Halifax in Canada. But the distance, however great, might have been faced if she had not had a miserable quarrel with Herbert. It began with some misunderstanding about the tombstone on the youngest little girl's grave, to which Henrietta had wished to contribute. She had written to Evelyn from the Riviera, in all the soreness of worn-out nerves and grief from which the sublimity has gone. The very fact that they had been drawn so close to one another made her especially irritable to Evelyn. After one or two of her letters an answer came from Herbert. Evelyn is very ill from all she has been through, and the doctor says it is most important that she should be kept from every sort of worry. She was so distressed at your last letter, and answering you took so much out of her, that I have taken the liberty of keeping this one from her. You have no right to write to her in this way, and I must ask you to drop all correspondence for the present, if your letters are to be in the same strain. Henrietta declared that he was trying to come between her and her sister, and that if that was the case she should never trouble them again. She did not write at all for several weeks. Then she felt remorseful. But Herbert could not forgive her. He wrote coldly that Evelyn was still so unhinged as to be incapable of receiving letters without undue excitement. CHAPTER Seven. Even now, when there is a certain amount of choice and liberty, a woman who is thrown on her own resources at thirty-nine, with no previous training and no obvious claims and duties, does not find it very easy to know how to dispose of herself. But a generation ago the problem was far more difficult. Henrietta was well off for a single woman, but she was incapable and not easy to get on with. She would have thought it derogatory to do any form of teaching, teaching the natural refuge of a workless woman. Three or four courses presented themselves. First, philanthropy. She was not really more philanthropic than she had been at twenty, when her aunt had described to her the happiness of living for others, but she felt at nearly forty that charitable work was a reasonable way of filling up her time, on the whole the most reasonable. She never had had much to do with poor people. 
Mrs. Simmons had helped the charwoman and the gardener and the driver from the livery stables when they were in special difficulties, and Henrietta had continued to do so, and had had her hour at the hospital. That was all. There were the servants, of course, but with the exception of Ellen, she looked on servants more as machines made for her convenience, liable to get out of order unless they were constantly watched. Entirely without enthusiasm, and with a dreary fighting against her lot, she made inquiries among her acquaintances as to where she might find charitable work. At length somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who was working in London under a clergyman. After further inquiries it was found that the somebody was a lady, who would be very glad if Henrietta would come and live with her, while she saw how she liked the work. The clergyman, the lady, and all the other workers were earnest, enthusiastic, high-minded, and full of common sense. Henrietta was not one of these things. She was also very inaccurate, unpunctual, and forgetful, and if her failings were pointed out to her in the gentlest way, she took offence, not because she was conceited, but because at her age she was beyond having things pointed out. She stayed at the work six months, and during that time she was always offended with somebody, and sometimes with everybody. The work was conducted more on charity organisation lines than was usual in those days. Money was not given without due consideration and consultation. This was difficult, and required more thinking than Henrietta cared for so she saved herself trouble by bestowing five shillings wherever she wanted, feeling at the bottom of her heart that if she could not be liked for herself, she would buy liking rather than not be liked at all. The five shillings, however, did not buy either gratitude or affection. She had always had a grudging way with people of a different class from herself, and a conviction, in spite of indiscriminate arms, that she was being taken in. This infringement of the rules drove the vicar to exasperation. His whole heart was in his work, and Henrietta's disloyalty hindered him at every turn. "'Can't she be asked to give up meddling in the parish?' he said to his wife. "'No, dear, you know she can't, and she is very generous, even if she is tiresome. She has often been very helpful to you. You ought to be grateful.' "'I'm not grateful,' he said, striding about the room. "'And then she's so petty. Always these absurd squabbles. She hasn't got a spark of love, for God or man. That's at the root of it all. We don't want a person of that sort here. If she cared about the people, even if she did pauperise them, I might think her a fool, but I could respect her. But, you know, she doesn't care for a soul but herself.' "'I don't think it is that, but she's in great trouble, I'm sure she is. "'When you were preaching about sorrow last Sunday, I saw her eyes were filled with tears.' "'Were they?' he said. "'I'm sorry, but look here, dear, I don't think this sort of work ought to be used as a soothing syrup "'or as a rubbish shoot for loafers who don't know what else to do.' If people aren't doing it because they think it's the greatest privilege in the world to be allowed to do it, I can't see that they do much good. I think you're too hard on her. Am I? I expect I am. 
I know I'm fagged to death. She gives Mrs. Wilkins pounds on the sly, which the old lady's been transforming into gin. And then when I explain the circumstances and implore her to leave well alone, she talks my head off with a torrent of incoherent statements which have nothing whatever to do with the point. It certainly was true that Henrietta did not do much good, and no one was more aware of this than herself. She stood outside the community and looked in at them like a hungry beggar at a feast. How she envied their happiness! But she did not feel that she was, or ever could be, a partaker with them. As months passed on she drew no nearer to them. They were all so busy, so strong in their union with one another. They did not seem to have time to stretch out a friendly hand to one who was at least as much in need of it as Mrs. Wilkins. The lady she lived with found her trying. A very trying person, was the phrase that went the round about her, always criticising small arrangements about the meals and the housekeeping for Henrietta could not at first reconcile herself to having no authority to exert, and this jangling was not a good preparation for sisterly sympathy towards her. The vicar's wife might have become friends with her, but during the six months Henrietta was in the parish, Mrs. Wharton was ill and hardly able to see anyone. Besides, she was shy, and the only time that Henrietta came to tea they never succeeded in getting beyond a comparison of foreign hotels. Henrietta would have liked to confide her troubles, but as she grew older she had become a great deal more reserved, and also these troubles she was ashamed to speak of. To think that she had made her own sister, ill and miserable as she was, more ill and more miserable, she could not forgive herself. She was even harder on herself than Herbert had been. As Mr. Wharton had said, it was useless engaging in this arduous work when her heart was elsewhere. When her six months of trial came to an end it was clear that the only thing for her was to go. No one could pretend they were sorry, and as everyone imagined she was glad, there seemed no reason to disguise their feelings. They would have been surprised if they had known her thoughts as she sat at the evening service on her last Sunday. Whatever I do, I fail. What is the use of my living? Why was I born? She said to Mr. Wharton in her farewell interview, I know I have been very stupid at learning what was to be done, and I have not been willing to take advice. Now I look back, I see the mistakes I have made, and I have done harm instead of good. I want to give you—she named a large sum, considering the size of her income—to spend as you think right. I hope that may help to make amends. I am very sorry." He heard a quiver in her voice, and the dislike and irritation he had felt all the six months faded away. "'This is much too generous of you.' he stammered. It is my fault, all my fault. I have been so irritable I haven't made allowances. My wife tells me of it constantly. I wish you would forgive me and give us another chance. Stay six months longer." His awkwardness and distress almost disarmed her, but she had felt his snubs, and at nearly forty she was not going to be encouraged like a child. So that, 
though for many reasons she longed to stay she answered thank you it was a purely temporary arrangement i have other plans as she walked home she wondered what the other plans were when in doubt go abroad she went abroad again for three months her companion was picked up from nowhere in particular an odd woman like herself they went to italy neither of them cared in the smallest degree for sculpture architecture painting archaeology poetry history politics scenery languages or foreigners like most women she loved certain aspects in her garden at home which were connected with incidents in her life there was a path bordered by roses along which they had walked when evelyn announced her engagement and a special old apple-tree reminded her of the night her mother died but to go and admire what baedeker called a magnificent coup d'oeil was no sort of pleasure to her however she and miss gurney had one unending amusement which italy is peculiarly able to supply they could make short visits to different towns and fit sights into their days as one fits pieces into a puzzle henrietta found this sport most satisfying chapter eight just as they were getting tired of table d'hote dinners there came to their hotel an enthusiast for learning it was before the days of women's colleges they were established but frequented only by pioneers in whose ranks no henriettas are to be found but courses of lectures were so ordinary that not even the most timid could look askance at them as philanthropy had failed and no one could pretend that art could be a resource for henrietta her career of sketches and two-part songs had been phenomenally short invaluable as it has proved itself for many english women suffering from her complaint everything pointed to study as the next solution on the list study henrietta had not read a book which required any mental exertion since her dozen chapters of i promosi sposi fifteen years ago still the lectures sounded pleasant to her they were a novelty she could not think of anything else they were a novelty must be their claim to distinction she and the travelling friend found a boarding-house near the lecture-room london and the lodgings both looked dismal after the brightness of abroad but they were excited at the prospect of establishing themselves on their own account it was enterprising but not too enterprising henrietta found a band of enthusiasts at the lecture it seemed her fate to run up against enthusiasm she could not share young ladies middle-aged ladies even old ladies all listening spellbound at least if not absolutely spellbound spellbound compared to henrietta to an elderly gentleman discoursing on aristotle for most of them aristotle and the satisfaction of using their minds were sufficient but a little knot of middle-aged women in the front with hair inclined to be short and eyes bursting with intelligence used learning as a symbol of emancipation lectures were their vote now they would be in prison henrietta listened for five minutes then suddenly her thoughts darted to her portmanteau 
she had lost the key at dieppe they went on to the incivility at the custom-house the incivility of the waiter at Barley, the incivility of the gardener at her old home the geranium bed in the garden would her stepmother attend to it her father was his eyesight really failing she came back with a jump to find that the lecture had moved on several pages she listened with fair success for another five minutes then her mind wandered to her landlady at the lodgings was she perfectly honest did her expression inspire confidence where was that pearl brooch louis had given her it was louis's birthday to-morrow she must write and hear also how tom was getting on in this his second term at school she must send him a hamper she had settled the contents of the hamper when she found that some one was speaking to her the lecturer was asking whether she felt she would care to write a paper he hoped as many ladies as possible would make an attempt at the papers it would be a great pleasure and interest to him to look through them etc on the way back she found miss gurney entranced with everything she seemed to have picked up a great deal more than henrietta they went at once to a library and a bookshop to get what they had been advised to read and miss gurney bought reams of paper she was hard at work the whole evening henrietta had one of the books open before her but she found the same difficulty in concentrating herself that she had done at the lecture miss gurney was rapidly filling an exercise book with an abstract and was keeping up a conversation as well ah that was the piece i couldn't quite understand this morning yes i see now it is quite clear look miss simmons oh i shall learn greek i certainly shall as he said it will make it twenty times more interesting what were they all so excited about henrietta had never cared about abstract questions and she could not see that there was any object in discovering what the ancient greeks thought about them more than two thousand years ago the evening before she and miss gurney had had an interesting conversation on the weekly averages of house books then she felt comfortable and on the solid earth why then was she attending lectures on aristotle well because miss gurney had a friend whose cousin had married the lecturer professor amory and in the difficult problem of choosing a subject when there was nothing she really cared to know about this was as good a reason as any other then henrietta remembered how she and emily mentz years ago at school had argued the whole of saturday afternoon about mary queen of scots and had not been on speaking terms the following day because emily had called mary frivolous had she ever really been that queer little girl still she was anxious to give the lecturer a chance most anxious for she had already had to suffer from minna and louis's sympathy that the parish work was a failure she read three chapters and fell asleep in the middle of the fourth and went to bed half an hour earlier than usual next morning she could not remember a word of what she had read but for two dates and one sentence which remained in her head 
even now in the latter half of the nineteenth century in spite of an unparalleled advance in the knowledge of the natural sciences the world has not yet produced a mind which can equal that of aristotle in its astounding versatility and profundity of learning she determined to persevere but was it her subconscious self which discovered a vast arrear of letters which it was incumbent on her to answer before she thought of anything else after the lecture there was a class at which everyone talked even the dear old lady next to henrietta was asking a quavering question yes a little delicate old lady had energy to keep the current of the lecture in her head she said that aristotle's problem whether it was possible for slaves to have ordinary virtues made her think of the difference in the christian teaching of st paul's epistles had any of the other greek philosophers been more humane in their views on slavery then another voice struck in and compared the ancient idea of slavery with the slave code of the united states the voice was rather strident but not unpleasant it had a great deal to say and for some minutes seemed likely to take the lecture altogether from the mouth of the lecturer henrietta looked in its direction and saw a small apple-cheeked elderly lady the voice and the face both set her thinking and by the end of the lecture she was certain that the elderly lady was miss arundel she spoke and when miss arundel had recollected who she was it took a little time henrietta received a most cordial invitation to tea miss arundel lived with a niece in a couple of rooms quite close to henrietta mrs marston was dead and miss arundel had retired from the school with just enough to live in decent comfort so now after teaching all my life i am giving myself the treat of learning and i can't tell you how i am enjoying it miss simmons ada and i both like professor amory so much and she prosed on about the lecture and the book she was reading and did not much care to talk over the old times which were still very dear to henrietta it amazed Henrietta to think that she had once blushed and trembled at the look of this fussy, garrulous little governess. She might be something of a bore, but there was no question of her happiness, her interest in life. She had been getting up at six the last three mornings that she might finish a book, a large book in two volumes with close print that had to be returned to the library henrietta could imagine nothing in the world for which she would get up at six o'clock then her thoughts went like lightning to the morning when the telegram had come telling of little madeline's death the wound she had thought healed burst out afresh for a few seconds she felt as if she could hardly breathe get up at six o'clock of course she would have forfeited her sleep with joy night after night in the midst of envy she felt something like contempt for miss arundel as a child running after shadows on her way home she compared her past with miss arundel's miss arundel could look back on busy successful happy years her room was filled with tributes from old pupils they were continually writing to her and coming to see her that henrietta knew 
she did not know how often they had thanked her and told her what they owed her then she envied miss arundel's powers of mind after forty years of unceasing and exhausting work she seemed as fresh as a schoolgirl and far more capable of learning while henrietta after twenty years of rest had not merely lost all the qualities she had had as a child but had gained none from age and experience to take their place the realization of this fact startled and humiliated her if her powers had already declined at forty what was to happen in the twenty years of life that she might reasonably count upon as still before her she thought of miss arundel's words etta simmons is a girl with possibilities i shall be interested to see how she will turn out miss arundel had long forgotten them and now looked on henrietta simply as a co-member of the lectures but she said to her niece after henrietta had been to tea what a very know-how person miss simmons is i should like to shake her henrietta tried her hardest to work at the lectures to recover if possible what she had lost but it was of no use a person of more character and determination might have succeeded in spite of the long years of mental self-indulgence so might a person more ready to take advice but at forty as i have said she felt she was beyond advice so she would not notice miss gurney's hints she chose to despise her numberings and brackets though she was half envious of them and however contemptible these aids may be to a real student they were evidently the one hope for henrietta's foggy mind she began a paper on the sly and with much sweat of brow the following sentence emerged there are a number of celebrated writers in ancient greece and among the number we may notice aristotle who wrote a number of celebrated books among which two called the ethics and republic are very celebrated he also wrote many other works but none are so celebrated as the two above mentioned she had not written a paper for twenty-three years and she felt as helpless as if she were trying to express herself in french her essays had been well thought of at school as she was floundering along up came miss gurney and looked over her shoulder oh miss simmons i should have a margin if i were you i know professor amory likes a margin for the corrections he said so himself oh and you don't mind my saying so but aristotle did not write a republic shall i just scratch that out that was plato and i should have a new paragraph there and i always find i don't know if you will that it makes it easier to underline some of the words i am not at all certain that i am going to write a paper said henrietta i just wrote a few notes down to amuse myself oh i'm so sorry dear well if you should think of doing a paper you must read this article it's such a help it really puts all one wants to say oh no i shouldn't care to read that at all oh do let me put it here and then you can look at it no thank you miss gurney went out and henrietta sat at her paper for two hours and a half it was so bad so unintelligible that she actually cried over it and when she heard miss gurney's step 
she carried it off to her bedroom and locked the door. Miss Gurney was after her in an instant. "'How are you getting on with your paper, dear? Can I be of any help?' She did finish it at last, and gave it to Mr. Amory. She knew it was bad, but she was too ignorant to know quite how bad. Professor Amory, with the extreme courtesy of elderly gentlemen, wrote, "'I think there are one or two points which I have not made quite clear. Would you care to talk them over with me after the class?' But this offer was so alarming that Henrietta cut her lectures for two weeks. There would have been more chances for her if only she could have become in the least interested. She tried the French Revolution next term for a change, but liked it no better than Aristotle. Intellectual life was dead and buried in her long ago. What would have really suited her best, in the present circumstances, would have been shorthand and typewriting, but at that time no such occupation was open to her. She would, perhaps, have jogged on indefinitely at the lectures, if Miss Gurney, whose great interest was novelty and change, and whose abstracts of learned books had lately become much less voluminous, had not jumped at a suggestion to take a delicate niece abroad, and proposed that Henrietta should come too. So Henrietta consented, and with little regret they gave up the lodgings, and said good-bye to learning. End of section 3